Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Namo Sadanto Sujedo Ye Olahudi San Miao San Putoshe Namo Sadanto Sujedo Ye Olahudi San Miao San Putoshe Wushang the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I have come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra lecture tonight. We're going to be looking into the Flower Dormant Sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra. And before we start, I'd like to invite everybody to turn around and look at what I'm looking at in terms of color. The, uh, this is the right time of the year. The uh, sun is coming in, setting over the Golden Gate Bridge, and it shines through our Bodhisattva stained glass windows and makes a beautiful colored array. Uh, during evening chanting, when there's smoke, incense smoke in the air. The air itself turns green and red and blue and yellow, which is what I'm looking at. It's very beautiful. Stained glass is interactive with nature. It's quite marvelous. So. All right. Now, uh, we're going to start. You have two pieces in front of you. One is a booklet with the sutra in it, and one is a s- separate sheet that's loose here. Everybody, everybody have one of these? You need one of these. And this is the next page that will go into the booklet along with more 
once we um, get it translated and bound. So what we need is the front cover of the booklet with the binding on it, because that's what we're going to chant right this minute, the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Then we're going to need this page because that's our text tonight. And I hope somebody will remind me at the end of the lecture to tell everybody to take that last sheet and stick it in the back so that when it's time to bind it together, we'll have them in one piece. I'm likely to forget that at the end of the lecture, so somebody remind me. Let's do uh, our invocation. The cover of the sutra booklet has the name of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and we're going to invite them to come. Namo Uh, turn to this one. We're going to start with the Chinese side, which is right up at the top, the very first character. Oh, it's there. Good. It's the last page of the booklet, too. So if you turn to page 62 in your booklet, you'll get the same thing as what we have here. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I hear what you're saying. I'm going to need a booklet. Dashing Pasha, would you hand me that one? So, let me correct myself. Turn to page 60, page 50. This one doesn't have it. <laughs> Some of you don't have. Some of you. You have 62? Good. I need a one that has 62. The books are not quite the same, every one from the other, because we're in the process of doing it ourselves and binding them, and it's a sequential thing. So does, does everyone have 62 on the back cover? That's what you want. If you don't, we'll get you one. Anybody not have 62? 
Okay, we need one here for Dashing Pasha. You do have 62. Okay, anybody not? Anybody need 62? Okay. Great. All right. So this is binding a book and getting it to work just right takes a little bit of, a lot of concentration, in fact. Not a little, but a lot of concentration. So we're on the back of page 62. We're on page 62, which is the back of the booklet. And we're going to go all the way down. We'll go all the way down to the bottom. Whether or not we get to, to the bottom of that in our explanation, we'll see how much time we have. But that's our goal, is to finish this section tonight. Okay, we ready? Alright, let's try again. For it's a tongue twister. I got to do that again. It's not respectful. For Shi 无有穷尽 Okay, there we go. Now, this time, turn to page 63, this one, separate page, that extra page that's loose, and instead of doing sequential reading, we're going to read it in unison. We're going to do it all together, down to the bottom. Palms together if you'd like to, voluntary. Ready? With me. Disciples of the Buddha, when bodhisattvas stay on the ground of happiness together with me, they make vows like these. Their courage is thus, thus their great abilities. With these ten vows as foremost, they complete a million asankhya great vows. Continue. Disciples of the Buddha, these great vows come to accomplishment through ten statements about cessation. What are the ten? They are, my vows could end if the realm of living beings could end. 
if the realm of worlds could end, if the realm of empty space could end, if the Dharma realm could end, if the realm of nirvana could end, if the realm of Buddha's appearing could end, if the wisdom of thus come ones could end, if the realm of thought could end, if the realm of states mastered by the Buddha's wisdom could end, if the realm of worlds turning, of dharma turning, and knowledge turning could end, if the realm of beings came to an end, my vows would also end, if the realm of worlds up to and including the realm of the turning of dharma and knowledge came to an end, then my vows would also end. The realm of beings, however, cannot end, up to and including the realm of the turning of worlds, dharma, and knowledge cannot end. Thus, the qualities of goodness that create my great vows can also never end. It's a different experience reading together, isn't it? That's interesting. Yeah, one we find the typos, that's one. That was my mistake. Two, two thes in there. Please uh, come on down and fill up the empty seats. Don't, don't be shy and sit in the back, okay? Okay, so that's interesting. Let's uh, go right through. There's a lot to cover tonight. I've got a lot of announcements and lots of things to present to everybody. So I'd like to get through our text. Can somebody help out people who don't? If you just reach right across to the seat beside you and grab that sutra text, then you're all set. We're going to... Uh, and Vince, would you mind helping Sam out showing where we are? We, we have to, because we're right at the end of our booklet and we're in the process of adding to it, we're at the back of the booklet and then for the Chinese and then here for the English, separate, separate page. So our bodhisattvas, these awakened beings on the ten grounds, are, we're halfway through the first ground of ten. This is a description of how somebody called a bodhisattva should live and think takes us right into their mind, it takes us into their behavior. And ideally, if we really are opening it up the way I'd like to, it inspires us to think how this description of perfected humanity could connect with my life, with my real life. Is there anything here that could inspire me to be a better person? That would be success. If, if When the lecture is done, we have that feeling. So it's talking about vows. That's our key, that's our word, that's our theme is vows. And mm, some of us know exactly what that means, the way the sutra describes it. Some of us, that's a, a different idea. We have things that are familiar to us in the West, like New Year's resolutions. Um, but it's not the same thing, cause especially tonight, because tonight we get to hear how the bodhisattva is just underscoring, underscoring, underscoring how long he, she plans to hold these vows. How unchangeable these vows are. How firm and stable. How rock solid these vows are. That's tonight's topic. So um, when we say New Year's resolutions, those are often made with the idea that mm, there's not a lot of oomph. There's not a lot of heart in them. They're kind of made with the expectation that they're going to fade and be forgotten before too long. And Nobody's going to remember whether or not you decided this was the year that you're going to stop smoking. This is the year that you're going to stop day trading and save your money instead. 
this is the year that you're going to actually quit that second helping of dessert. Whatever the, the, the wish is, usually it's that. It's my New Year's resolutions are always based on stopping something I didn't want. And, of course, you're coming face to face with the strength of habit as soon as you do that. Habits are strong. It's very humbling to realize how much habits own us. And yet, they're right from me. Nobody else tells me to do it. But boy, those habits are like tide. Goes out, comes back, goes out, comes back. Habits are like that. So that's kind of our understanding of vows is they're made from the mind. A vow is something that rises in the mind. And in fact, we do have things in our daily life that have the strength or put us close to what the bodhisattva would consider a vow. Marriage vows takes a serious, serious thought before we break our marriage vows. We don't casually let those go. Contracts. Contracts are vows. I promise to provide you with X amount of product in exchange for this precise amount of cash or credit or uh, security or real value. That's what that's a contract. And the vows of a bodhisattva have pretty much the same force. Um, if a doctor takes the Hippocratic Oath, I vow that I will never use these skills to harm. Right? That's a vow. That's a promise. The bodhisattva's vows have strength like that. So, in fact, we do have customs in our in our civil society that that resemble the bodhisattva's vows. But tonight we're going to find out how much he or she means it. Do you mean it? Mm-hmm. I mean it. How do we prove it? What we just recited. Let's take a look. So it says, disciples of the Buddha. When bodhisattvas stay on the ground of happiness, that's our first ground, that's his name, they make vows like these. Their courage is thus, rusher, thus their great abilities. With these ten vows as foremost, they complete a million asankhya, great vows. So this being the sutra, it gives us ten things. And then it tells, it says that uh, those ten further expand and a ten becomes ten times ten, that becomes ten times ten becomes ten times ten and so forth. It, the Avatamsaka is very much a sense of the tiniest and the biggest interchanging. Very dynamic, pulsing use of the mind. Courage of a bodhisattva and yong in Chinese. Their functions, their abilities are thus. Mm, that translation uh, brings a question to my mind. We're trying to understand what is being said here. And it says, mm, in fact, we skipped that in Chinese. It says literally, disciples of the Buddha, when the Bodhisattva stays, when the Bodhisattva is there on that, on that stage, on that ground. And it's kind of like, if you'd say that, it's when, when the Bodhisattva was a mother. That would be the equivalent. When is the Bodhisattva not a mother? When is a mother not a mother? 
once you bring the child into the world, you're the mom. That relationship lasts, right? When the bodhisattva is on that ground of happiness, he doesn't at some point retire and say, I'm no longer on the ground of happiness. I'm going to take a break. So we could say, as the bodhisattva stays there on the ground of happiness, the stage of happiness, fa ru shi da shi yan, brings forth from the mind great vows like these, ru shi da yong, and has the big yong. Yong word means function, use, capability, ability. Has this incredible ability because the vows were made. So here's the idea. When we make a vow, things change. When we make a vow in our mind, there are qualities that happen that you didn't have before you do it. What would be an example? Once you take the Hippocratic Oath, you can practice. You can practice medicine. It's legal. Once you are married, you have a name. You are Mrs. You are Mr. Why? That's the function of that marriage contract, that marriage license. You're a Mr. and Mrs. You're a couple. Big question in, in California and other states, are what are the rights of same-sex marriages? Do they have uh, conjugal rights? Do they have the rights of married couples? Big question, serious question being discussed. What are the functions, what are the yung of that marriage? Is it the same? So when a bodhisattva makes a vow, things change. Doors open up. They think differently. We see differently. When we take, we say, for example, what are some of the vows? Living beings are infinite in number. Even though they're infinite in number, I'm going to find a way to save them all. Says a bodhisattva, there's a vow. When you unpack that one, suddenly you're in a different relationship with living beings. You can't say, living beings are numberless, I vow to save them all, including the ants that I just stomped under my shoe, including the cockroaches that I just doused with gasoline, you know, or sprayed. Mm. Hard, right? Suddenly you're in a different relationship once you make a vow. That's the function of the vow. Suddenly you think, oh, all living beings has to include the many-legged ones, not just the two-legged ones. So what does that bind me once I put it in my heart and say, I want to save living beings, limitless living beings, then I'm going to find a way to keep them from harm. I'm going to find a way to, to make their lives pleasant, at least sustainable. So that's what it means. These vows have a function. It's real different. It's, it's like, this is real stuff that you do with the mind. I'm going to make a vow to become a Buddha. Translated, I'm going to make a vow to use wisdom and compassion everywhere. What happens when you say that? Well, it means you're going to use less anger and emotion and selfishness, the opposites of wisdom and compassion. So things change once you make these great vows, says the sutra. Ru shi da yong meng. 
Okay, Ru Shi Da Zuo Yong. It also says, I'm ahead of myself here, Ru Shi Da Yong Meng. When you make vows, you have courage. I'm going off the Chinese, I should go off the English here. Their courage is thus, and thus their great abilities. When you make a vow like that, you get courage. You lose your fear. Because why? You are single-minded. You set your mind to it. A vow has another function. It goes right at the root of doubt. It cuts doubts. Vows cut doubts. I'm going to do it. On the other hand, I might reconsider. Right? Not. A vow is really, I'm going to do it. Right? You don't let the doubts stick around. I'm going to be married to you till death do us part. Yes, I do. Fingers crossed behind the back. Right? Unless it gets tough, in which case I'm out of here. Right? No, usually not. Marriage vows are wholehearted. Right? You make that promise till death do us part. That's a long time. That's a set, fixed, I promise. So that's what Yongmeng, it says. Ru shi da yongmeng. This kind of courage comes from vows. Bodhisattvas make vows, they get strength. And what goes away is doubt. Doubt is like what? Doubts are like termites chewing away at the wood of your house, of your shelter. Termites weaken the timber. Doubts weaken your mind. Termites, the Chinese are called bai yi, white ants, they're called. And what do they do? They, you poke your finger in the joist and this powder comes down where there should be solid wood. Termites! There's, oh, people have stopped, I don't know, what, what's the situation in, in New Orleans? Before Katrina in New Orleans, the, the news out of New Orleans in terms of structures was, they have, was it fire ants? No, no. Mexican, there was some sort of termites. Chinese termites, I forget what it was called. Anybody remember? There was this National Geographic reported about the infestation of a special kind of termite that lived in New Orleans because of the moisture that was eating all the houses. And when they come, they would turn a house into a useless property in a very short number of months. And it was particular to New Orleans. Anyway, I remember my spotty memory of that. But there was that infestation of termites. Um, I remember down in Six Turtles, Taiwan, where I lived, Liu Gui, down in southern Kaohsiung County, we had termites in our building there. And you could, it, the wood just turned just worse than sponge. You could put your forefinger right up to the second knuckle into the wood that's supposed to be holding you up because of the termites. So doubts do that. Doubts are like the termites in our mind. You think, yeah, that's really true. Yeah, I really believe that. Kind of. But sometimes I don't. And if I get any encouragement to doubt it, well, you know, maybe I'm not so sure. And then a situation arises where you've got to act on your courage, on your conviction, and you put your foot down on the accelerator and the car goes... <laughs> It doesn't go forward because you, you engage doubts instead of 
courage instead of conviction. So, Sutra says two things happen when you make big vows. There's a couple empty seats down here in front. When you make big vows, one of the things that happen is you open doors, new abilities arise, new functions arise. Number two, you lose fear. You get courage. So you get courage and you get abilities. Because why? Essentially because you have unified your mind behind one thought. A vow is a laser beam. Yes, I will. Yes, I promise. I'm going to do this. I'm reminded of, there's a great story about building of the Golden Gate Bridge. People, I didn't look this up, and I, if I were not sitting in front of all of you, I would grab immediately for Google or Wikipedia, but I can't do that sitting here. Um, I would go to get the name of the man. There's a man, I think his name was McLaren. Anybody know? Anybody up in your San Francisco history? McLaren, I think. There was a Scottish engineer. Oh, there we go. Uh, let me know, buddy. Who built the Golden Gate Park? Golden Gate Park and Golden Gate Bridge. I think his name was McLaren. And he did something that nobody dared do. They'd thought about it before, but they never said, I'm going to do it, which was what? Span the Golden Gate. Go to Fort Point, that Civil War fort. Stand there. Look across. Over your head is this orange architectural marble the number one tourist site in the whole wide world, and look across that rushing water and think, how would you do it? If you were going to do it, where would you start? It's a fast water coming through this, funneled through this narrow stretch. And you could basically hit a golf ball. Well, you'd have to be Tiger Woods. But, or maybe, uh, what's his name, Tom, who's, who's currently ahead of the the British Open right now? Tom Watson, 59 years old. Who else is 59 years old? <coughs> Me. And I could be leading the British Open tonight. We'll see. Tomorrow's a big day. We want to transfer merit. Everybody's hoping for the 59-year-old to win the British Open. <laughs> Me too. So maybe he could hit a golf ball from Fort Point across to Marin County, but that'd be a big drive. It's, I bowed it. I know how far it is. I bowed across. Walked across, actually, and bowed there on the other side. But this engineer said, I'm going to do that. He made a vow. I'm going to build a bridge across that gap. Sure enough, he did. And he also had a lot to do with Golden Gate Park. If you want to see something very interesting, which will, if you're a geography buff or a history buff, go to the Golden Gate Club. Golden Gate Club is right there in the Presidio, down from the chapel. We know about the chapel because the Interface Center is, owns that chapel. And we're, board, we're on that, we're on the director board of that. Institute for World Religions is a sponsoring organization. If you go to the Golden Gate Club, it's a, it's a nice space that you can rent there are pictures of what Golden Gate Park and the whole Presidio era, area looked like before it was built up. It looked like sand dunes. It was a big sand dune. That's all. It was dunes going down to the bay, 
going down to the, the, gate, the gate and then down to what is uh, that area. It's a cliff house. And, and amazing, just sand. And this guy said in his mind, I'm going to do it. I'm going to span it. Figured out how to do it and succeeded. Some Scottish madman. Oh, he had his, his political, you know, as hard as building it was getting people behind him to support it. So he did that. He made a vow. I'm going to do it. He did. So maybe he had doubts. Nonetheless, he was able to transform them. So he had the courage and the ability to make his mind, his single thought, vows are one thought. I will. I promise. That's what it is. Then you work it out. With those ten vows as foremost, they complete a million Sankhya great vows. Okay? Joseph Strauss? Strauss? Strauss. Strauss. Was the one who did what? Engineer. Of the Golden Gate Park or Bridge? Bridge. Try Park. Golden Gate, try Golden Gate Park. Strauss, huh? Okay. Thank you, Mike. Check it. Check the... Because that's not the name I remember, but I'll, I won't argue. So. Um, 佛子... Now, the next piece is a familiar refrain in the Avatamsaka Sutra, which if you've read it, you'll recognize, which is, from beginning to end, the sutra is about the mind. It's about your mind, my mind. It's about the human mind. And the human mind is invisible. It's, you can look at the brain, but that's not it. It's amorphous. You can't grab it. You can't put it in your hand and feel it. You can't take its temperature. You can't find it. It's nowhere to be found. And yet, the sutra is talking about this thing that can't be found, can't be weighed, can't tell what color it is. And it's describing it. So what does it do? It uses analogies. It uses things that we know to talk about something that we don't know, but are in the middle of. Every one of us right this minute is in the middle of our mind. We're sit- we, this morning we woke up with our mind. Tonight we're going to go to sleep with it. And whatever you had for lunch today, you ate lunch with your mind. You're in the middle of your mind eating lunch. The mind ate lunch whatever it was. Um, The sutra, to do that, to describe the mind, gives us ways to measure, gives us a kind of a parameter. It gives us like a yardstick or the way to measure. You know how carpenters take that tape, that yellow tape, and they bring it out and push the button and it goes, the spring pulls the tape measure back into the silver handle. So the sutra has that. The sutra has these measuring tapes. It says, what are the ten? They are. Let's look at the the sutra. My vows could end if the realm of living beings could end. Following that, there are nine more. Nine more measures that tell us about that invisible mind. Gives us a way to look at the mind. The vows are solid. 
The point of all ten of these is, what he's saying is, I'm not going to change my mind. She's saying, this vow is real. These vows are real. What vows? We've had ten vows. I didn't mention that. If you, this is your first lecture in this series. For the last mm, couple months, we've been looking at ten vows that the Bodhisattva made. And they're long. It's not just, I'm going to quit smoking. It's lots of details, and they're vast and big and grand. You can look back if you'd like. Um, but those are what he's talking about. Those ten vows we've been studying. The Bodhisattva says, if the realm of beings can end, my vows will end. When's that going to happen? The colloquial answer is, don't hold your breath. Because you'll die before that happens. If you're waiting for the realm of living beings to end, it's not going to happen. And therefore, my vows also won't stop. That's the deal. Okay, So it's always, when will my vows end? When this thing ends. And you'll see as the, the logic, the internal logic of the paragraph, he says down below at the end of the ten, but those things won't end. You know about that. So therefore, you can infer that my vows are going to be true. Okay, that's how, this, that's how it's structured. So the sutra uses these measuring things to point to something that's hard to measure, which is an invisible thought. But boy, these thoughts last. And what you're looking at, mind you, I want to emphasize, this is not an intellectual inter enterprise. This is not just a head trip. The heart is involved. What you're looking at is the bodhisattva's heart. And when we think about vows, let's say a marriage vow. You say, I'm going to marry you. And your spouse says to you, I'm going to marry you. And those are words, but what is being put on the line? What are you looking at? What are you hearing? You're hearing heart and mind, but heart. Different different world. Ideas and thoughts are a world. A, B, C, D. Ah, 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 ah. Four, four, more, four. Right? Ichi, ni, san. A, i, u, e, o. Ka, ki, ku, ke, ko. Nani, nu, ne, no. Sa, shi, su, se, so. Ra, ri, ru, re. Right? That's the Japanese syllabus. You're hearing these pieces of language. But... There's another entire realm that's being invoked when you get to vows. And if you think, you know, it's interesting. We know these realms so well. If I say intellectual, intellectual vow, oh, I did make that New Year's resolution, didn't I? I remember that. I said that. You think, but boy, I had these nights sweating, waiting for a cigarette. Couldn't get to sleep. I was clammy. I was sweaty. Right? I had to go to try gum and I tried patches and I tried the shots and I tried acupuncture. And I had these friends at work who say, I just quit. <laughs> quit cold. Cold turkey. You know, oh, your heart just... And you're just in such a different realm. Mind and heart. A vow goes to both. These vows bring the heart into it. So you're seeing... 
The measure of the heart. The sutra plums both those realms, measures the realm of the mind and the heart together in something else, which is, you'd say, spirit is also involved. This is, this is a wonderful document that gives us a real yardstick to measure something that otherwise is hard to, hard to grasp. The, the, hum, the thing called Xin. Now we could have not just one lecture, but lectures about what is meant when you say Xin, the Bodhisattva's heart. Is it the mind that knows language, A-I-U-A-O, or is it the heart that goes, I felt that, or, oh, I moved. What is Xin? And um, interestingly enough, a, a Jesuit, a Catholic priest, Father Tom Hand, the late Father Tom Hand, from Mercy Center, came that really worked hard in this the Buddhist use of the word Xin, because he was a meditator. He was a Jesuit priest who meditated long and hard. And he said the best Western word for Xin is psyche. Psyche in the Jungian sense. He said that covers a lot of what he understands the Buddhists meant when they said Xin, which was Chitta in Sanskrit. So this is, that's a lecture for, for, that's a book, or libraries of books. What is meant by shin, chitta, psyche. Mm, good stuff. But it's what we're listening to the sutra with right now. It's not dry research. It's right this minute is what we're talking about. All right, so these vows are a way to, the vows are what the bodhisattva lives by, this is what makes a bodhisattva bodhisattva are his yuan, her yuan, and her heng, practices. Once you make the vow, how do you go about taking it down the road, his practices? But here we're talking about vows. Okay. Can the realm of living beings end? Mm, says the sutra, nope. Okay. What is the realm of living beings? That's our next step. That's our next challenge, to understand that and then figure out whether it's going to end or not. Um, as soon as we talk about living beings, sentient beings, creatures, um, we're into a big, uh, a big study because the realm of living beings would if you took it to the university, what would you be studying? You'd be studying biology, chemistry, physics, zoology, botany. Mm, you'd be studying statistics and actuarial tables, you know, lifespans, and you'd be studying law. Could living beings live by laws and torts and suits? And, um, it's all of knowledge. Everything that we know, we know largely in terms of creatures. Right? Sociology, relationships of creatures. Political science, how we legislate. That's all the study of living beings. But if we just look at the creatures themselves, the, that's where you want to turn to Buddha Dharma. Because the Buddha talked in great detail about living beings. It's classically, they, they give us ten. Shi fa jie, the ten 
dharma realms. And dharma realms are, you could say, universes where living beings live. So we talk about what? Living beings who have two feet, four feet, many feet. Living beings who are born from wombs, from eggs, from moisture, born by transformation. All these different kinds of living beings. Think butterfly, comes out of a caterpillar. Transformation. Right? Moisture born, think about amoeba. Not mosquitoes, because they come from eggs in the water. Um, egg born, fish are born from eggs. Huh, interesting. And womb born, mammals, us, and creatures like us. So the Sharangama Sutra gives us 12, sometimes 20 different categories of living beings. And it's a fascinating study. I'm not going to go into it in detail tonight because we've done it before. But just to say that the Buddha's view of sentient beings is not limited to human types. Lots and lots of living beings. And when you, when I, for example, first came, became aware of the Buddhist description of living beings, my world opened up. It happened while I was bowing. Um, I became aware, intensely aware, of one particular realm of living beings that I had been living totally ignorant of, which was the insects. Friends, insects rule the world. Don't believe it? Get down on your hands and knees and watch. Pick any square inch of earth. Now, it can't be baked clay. If it's baked clay, it's harder to see. You have to kind of get down there. But if you go out into the garden or into the lawn or into the roadside where the, where the uh, ice plant grows beside the freeway, don't recommend it because freeways are dangerous places, but go into the park, go into your backyard, go into the, the side lot outside your condo, and get close, get really close, kind of macro camera close, you know, like this close, and watch. Don't move, just watch. Take a square inch, that much, and watch. And if you're watching carefully, and you wait for about two or three minutes, you're going to suddenly notice something. That square inch of earth is alive in a way you never imagined, because why? We don't get close. We're up here, four feet, five feet, six feet up above what's really going on under your feet. Go take a close, close look at what's going on down there on the ground and you're going to be shocked. I found out later, much later, something that I already discovered through my own experience, which was every square inch if you just cut it off and you say creatures that have exoskeletons, shells, you don't want to go to the microscopic ones because you can't see them, right? But if you say shelled creatures or creatures with feet, if you cut it off there, 
a square inch of turf holds hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of little living beings. Insects rule. When I did the pilgrimage that I took, which allowed me to get real close to that living being's realm, the living beings of insects, I discovered on the coast of California there are up to 50 breeds of 50 species of ants alone. There are big black ones. There are tiny red ones. There are black and red ones. There are medium-sized ones. There are warrior ants that do nothing but invade other ants' turf. There's like gorilla ants that just do these slash and burn terrorist raids across the boundary. There are ants that just are, they, what do they do? They domesticate aphids and treat them like cows and milk them. Unbelievable. Stuff going on right under your feet. You don't know it till you look. Go look. If you have a, uh, a planter box on the balcony of your apartment, just take some time and go look. And just wait. Get your nose close there and wait. And what's astounding is how all this is going on and we're oblivious to it. During a rainstorm, uh, Marty, the other monk who was there, and I bowed during rain, bowed during sun and forest fires and freeze and we bowed all the time. We bowed in all the weather. We were multi, multi-purpose monks. We were all-weather monks, I guess you'd say. And we, we insulated ourselves with these yellow slickers that we got from Caltrans. To get this, without the Caltrans label, we got Caltrans, uh, you know, uh, repair crew slickers with suspenders, big black buttons. You could put them on quick, you know. And we had boots that, that went up Really nice. And I remember it was rainy and big pouring rain. And I was bowing on a meridian because we had passed a narrow part of the road and you can't bow there. You have to count the bows and then go to the meridian and stay there. So I had a chance to do that, which is inspect, because I was going to be at this one spot for about two, two and a half hours, bowing in one spot. And I remember bowing down and some of the, there are plantain plants, they're related to bananas, and they have these big round leaves, they're very pretty. And we look at them as weeds, because you can't eat them, they're, they're not edible. But they're, they're big, they're abundant, they're everywhere. And I remember bowing down and just kind of, trying to avoid putting my face right into the leaves because they were wet. But I remember just bowing to the right, and I'm bowing maybe 100 bows, and I look to the left for when I'm down in one bow, and the leaf is like this, and the the rain is hitting the leaf and pouring off it, and the the plant is going... (laughs) The plant is very cleverly crafted to catch every bit of rain it can. That's how it drinks seeing all this beautiful architecture, engineering of the leaf to bring the water down to the roots. But underneath, it's dry under the leaf. And I bow down and look, and here are three bugs upside down using a leaf as an umbrella looking at me. (laughs) Hi there. 
you're pretty stupid out there in the Wayne. Why don't you get under the shelter here like us? You know? They're looking at me, and I'm looking underneath the leaf. Here are the bugs, you know, clinging upside down, thinking, it's raining out. What's wrong with you? You know, we're dry. What's wrong with you? You know, and I'm, huh, okay. They're looking at me. Their eyes are clearly perceiving that I'm down there bowing into their world, and they're kind of going, hi, upside down, you know. It's like, okay, right, okay, that's what vows do, is they keep you out in the rain. So, how fascinating, you know, to see these bugs cleverly avoiding getting wet during the rainstorm underneath the leaf. I'm sure they were playing cards or, you know, counting, talking about the stupid monks out there bowing and and boy, I hope he doesn't step on us. Yeah, yeah. So, who knows? But there they were, you know. That's how you pass the afternoon if you have eight legs and it's raining. You're clinging to the underside of the leaf. And I remember another moment when uh, it was in Big Sur, out near Point Sur, where the lighthouse is. And it was big and windy and sunny at the same time. Hot and windy. And... I went down on a, on a bow on this big rock and this was a beetle. The other thing that you discover is there are so, 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 so many varieties of beetles, shelled insects. I, this would be another Wikipedia and you don't have to do it, Michael, but just count the number of insects on the coast of California that wear shells and have eight legs and crawl. There are tens of thousands. They're all distinct. They all have Latin names. They all eat things. They all are eaten by things. And it's really clear that the humans will come and go and this Dharma realm will still be there because they have successfully adapted. They live, there are lots of species that can't be eaten because their shells are hard. Their skeletons are outside. They're exoskeletons. So how interesting I remember bowing there near Point Sur. Here's this big rock. And the rock was really hot because the sun had been pounding on it. And what happened was, because you get down like this, and your eyeball is about an inch away from the realm of insects, where they live, I'm coming down into their world. Usually we're just six feet above it. So you bow down, and the rock is hot, and this beetle landed on the rock at the same time I did. And I'm watching him, and he looks up at me, and he suddenly pees. This little tiny, tiny pinhead-sized pool of beetle urine comes out on the rock, wets it, is absorbed by the rock, and dried and vanishes. At the time that I'm down there in my bow, and he looks up at me, kind of embarrassed, and hops away. And so I go down, the beetle, he pees on the rock. Maybe I scared him, I don't know. And he leaps away and the pee dries up and he's gone. And I thought, that's my life. Right? We come into the world, we're here for an instant on a hot rock, we pee and we're gone. And it dries up, no trace. Right? I mean, tell me that your life is going to be any more significant than the beetle coming and peeing on the rock and having it dry and going. What's the difference? You know? Well, I have an answer what the difference is, and it's called kindness. The kindness that you do to people and to other creatures lasts.
And the evil that we do as well lasts. But it was so clear that my coming to that rock for that moment of my bow and the beetles landing on the rock and peeing were not different. Not different. I was there reciting Buddha's name. He was there making his mark or her mark. I don't know. And ultimately in the bigger picture, what's going to last? Neither, both. That's pretty much the significance of what we do. Unless we use kindness and benefit. What, what's left in a word is karma. Okay, So, yeah, the, the deeds that we do and the results of those deeds are left. So, it's if we want to use kindness and if we use nastiness or selfishness, then that's left. So, it's a choice we have. In the end, I think it is more significant than beetles peeing on the rock, but for that moment, it was like, yeah, I totally identify with you, <laughs> Mr. Bug, because that's, you know, we come and we go so fast. Poof. In the long run, what lasts? Okay, so this is the realm of one kind of living being called beetles and the ants and the winged ones, the ones that fly and the ones that have eight legs called spiders. Let me tell you, um, I remember there's a road that connects Oxnard with Point Wainimi. We're down there in the Santa Barbara realm. And there's a, I forget the name of the road, but it was a very difficult bowing place because for some reason, Marty and I saw lots of dying things on this road. It's not a long road. It's about uh, five or six miles. But we saw a fatal accident that happened right in front of us. We saw dead animals on the side of the road. We saw dead cars and dead houses. It was a very strange road for some reason. Whether or not this was our state of mind projected to the environment is hard to say. But I remember... One uh, morning, it had been uh, really damp and uh, misty, dewy, foggy. And we stopped to write in our journals and we're looking for a place to sit. And here was a realtor's sign that had fallen. It was a big sign. It was not just a stick in front of the house kind of realtor sign. It was an advertisement sign, you know, something, something, Burbank Realty or something. And... And it had fallen down in the grass. And so we thought, ah, here, we can sit in full lotus on top of this sign. So, but it's in the wrong place. So Marty and I stopped and we reached and pulled the sign up. And underneath were 12 black widows. Black widow spiders from small to big. And it was a black widow spider's home. They were living their lives there and we had lifted up the sign, you know, and they weren't happy. They, who's ripping up my roof, you know? And suddenly to see, and they, there's something about toxic creatures that your system recognizes instantly. I don't, same thing with poisonous snakes, that you somehow see them before you know you're seeing them. I remember in, in Liu Gui in Taiwan, we have many, 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 many snakes on this property, including... Uh, hundred step snakes, 
Why are they called hundred step snakes? By Bushra. Because after you're bitten, you have a hundred steps. And down you go. They are that toxic. By Bushra. And there's Yusanjie, and there's Qingzhushe, green coral snakes, green bamboo snakes. They're this big, totally deadly venom. They're crates, K-R-A-I-T. That's their, and they're vipers, and they're cobras, Yanjingshe. Uh, they're called eye snakes because their hoods look like eyes. You ever seen a cobra spread his hood? He can mesmerize. Ooh, boy. They're all there. They're all in this, this jungle side, mountainside. And uh, the, the realm of these insects and snakes is, is very, very real and very um, intensely structured. It's not random. And just being there and recognizing the, uh, the, something about the system, the human system, registers when a creature can kill you. Maybe I've, I've seen pictures of apes reacting to snakes. There's something about snakes and, and baboons or chimps that also... It's like the first time I saw a green bamboo snake in Taiwan, I jumped before my eyes actually registered that I'd seen a green bamboo snake. It's like something in me, went, my stomach went jump and I pulled back and then I focused, oh, I've just seen a deadly poisonous snake in front of me. And it's that kind of first reaction. It's a very atavistic primal recognition that operates in us. It's preservation. So where was I? I was on spiders, right? Spiders live in the wild very successfully. In, on the coast, right on the coast where the breezes are constant, there are spiders that have these long, double, triple jointed legs. They're green, yellow, and black, and red. They're brilliantly colored. And they make their webs between trees that are set apart like this. Think of a tree. Those roots are not so tight. They, the root systems are like this, right? So the trees are at least this far apart. These spiders, right on the coast where the breezes blow, blow insects into their webs, make webs that span this far. So you can figure how big the spider is, right? If it can make a web, spin a strand that goes all the way across. These spiders are there waiting for the wind to blow stuff into their web. And if you're walking, how come we don't know this? How often do you get out of your car on the freeway? Not very often, right? So, except for extraordinary circumstances, I don't wish it. Well, when you bow there, you live there. I lived on the coast for three years. And you become part of the landscape. So we were part of the landscape, neighbors to these big, big spiders that are there. And if you have to find a place to go to the bathroom, of course, discreetly and all, you have to go where people aren't. And that puts you where the spiders are. And man, oh man, we learned really quickly how to identify a place where spiders would likely be so we wouldn't just walk between two trees and come face to face with this unhappy spider who said, hey, dude, I live here. You know, I mean, this is their turf. And wow, those creatures. This is the realm of living beings. One kind, the eight-legged, 
right? So, when does the realm of living beings come to an end? The Buddha described it as when this world ceases, we move. Consciousness carries us to another realm. We take form again. When does that realm end? Mm, as soon as it does, the show packs up its tent and moves to another world and puts the tent stakes down and says, hurry, hurry, step right up. You won't be late, but you will have to hurry. Take one home to little Jimmy. It's new, it's different, it's educational, it's entertaining. Come right and step right up. Hurry, hurry. Right? The world carnival's in town. We're back in another world. When does the realm of living beings end? Doesn't. Doesn't end. Why? Because karma brings us back. When do we stop taking form? When our karma stops bringing us back. Another way to think about it is causes have results. Physics says so. Every action brings about what? An equal and opposite reaction. We learned that in high school. Okay, so Newton, that's basic mechanics, right? Says so. That's measurable. So if we do something, there's a result. And when do we stop doing it? Well, when desire stops pushing us to do these things. When does desire stop? As long as we're going, <gasps> breathing, as long as we get up in the morning and say, I'm hungry, then desire pushes us out to eat. And if we nourish our bodies on others' bodies that aren't willing to be my breakfast, there's karma. So on and on and on. Worlds continue. Living beings continue. The Buddha sees the big picture of the whole system and just gives us his vision of how living beings go on and on and on and on and on and on. So can we live in a way that is karma-free? Sure. Sit still. Be kind. Right? Cross your legs or sit in a chair and contemplate, watch this incredible carnival of karma and its results happening in us, around us, through us, on all sides, forever and forever and forever. And we can end our karma. That's what the Buddha did. But even the Buddha had to pay back three debts in this lifetime. As the Buddha, after he woke up, he had karmic retribution coming back. The big top was opening in his life. Three ring circus. So that's when the realm of living beings ends. Basically, never. So, what does the Bodhisattva say? My vows could end if the realm of living beings could end. He's using that reality that the Buddha shows us to measure his mind, which is invisible. When is his vow going to end? It's not going to happen. That's how long these vows last. Okay? You get the message. This, this is the sutras here to show us the quality of the bodhisattva's heart. He says, I'm going to be in there helping living beings. I'm not going to become a Buddhist. Let's over. Jason? 
How does he become a Buddha? Yeah, good question. Seems like he's taken a loss. Mm. Jason's question was, how does a Bodhisattva become a Buddha? And you'd think, yeah. Now, that's, that question it begs another question, which is, why, why become a Buddha? Why does the Bodhisattva want to become a Buddha? And the answer would be, because when you're the Buddha, you don't suffer at all. Being a Buddha is a nice thing. Being a Buddha is the end of suffering. And when did you suffer last? Hmm? Are you suffering right this minute? Who knows? Maybe your knees really hurt sitting there on the floor. Maybe your stomach's really hungry. Maybe you're, you know, thinking about how could she have said that to me? You know, lots of suffering, internal, external. How could he be so cruel? Right? We have lots of suffering and the Buddhas are beyond it. Not that they're gone. Nirvana is a very dynamic state. It's very active and alive. But suffering is over. Fannal, afflictions are ended. That's the Buddha state. So Jason's question is, the Bodhisattva knows that. It's not that he or she doesn't know it. They know what Nirvana is like and Buddhahood is like. And they say, I want to stick around. And if you ask me how that could possibly be, how could anybody be so altruistic and selfless? I think it's because they feel the connection so strongly. How do you feel about your, somebody in your family who you really, really don't want to see hurting? Could it be your daughter? Could it be your son? Could it be your mom? Could it be your pet? Right? You really don't want to see Fluffy or Fido, you know, suffering. Roasted on somebody's platter, you know, being brought to the table. Not. Right. Yick. Right. You don't want to see your goldfish going down some cat's throat. <coughs> you know. Not. You don't want to see your bird, you know, being shot by a slingshot. Some kid, some neighbor kid. No. We care. The Bodhisattva cares that very same way. He sees all living beings as Fluffy and Fido. That's kind of rude, probably more than that, but you get the point. So he says, yeah, I don't hurt anymore, or I'm willing. Where it gets really esoteric is where people say, because this is not my realm, I don't know, people say the Bodhisattva feels the hurt all the same, and they're still willing to. It's not that they don't hurt, they've got some magic, it's that they have the capacity to feel the hurt and not leave. That's where it gets really profound. Right? People ask Master Shuyun, they said, remember this question, they said, Shu Lao, you're able to sit there without moving for up to a month. <laughs> this, this monk was able to sit still for a month and longer, never leave. Right? People say, how did he go to the bathroom? I don't know. I don't know. He sat there. <laughs> Amazing. How did he eat? I don't know. How did he get through Sunday morning without coffee and toast in the New York Times? I don't know. Half-calf latte. Right? I don't know. So, people said, but you're sitting there so long, your knees don't hurt. 
And Master Shuyan said, of course they hurt. Why do you think my knees don't hurt? <laughs> if you ever meditated through painful knees, that's amazing. His knees still hurt. And he just takes it. He just sits there. <coughs> Anybody see me put my foot down? Right? That's real. That's a bodhisattva. Able to sit there through the pain in the knees and not move. I don't know, Jason. <laughs> I don't know. How can a bodhisattva wait that long and still not become a Buddha? I don't know. But it's pretty amazing when you actually bring it down to the how do you feel right this minute? I'm hurting! The Bodhisattva says, yeah. That's called the nature of compounded existence. The nature of having a body that's made of stuff that comes apart is that way. And yet, if you see it the way it is, the Bodhisattva would say, thinking that you're ever really taking a break is delusion. The Bodhisattva, the answer, I think, is probably the Bodhisattva's wisdom and compassion. Allow him to be in the midst of all this and say, this is amazing. It's all amazing. Precisely because the Bodhisattva is not attached to me and mine, he's, he or she is no longer pursuing pleasure and running from pain. So everything that comes to him or her is an incredible gift, is joyful. And incredible. And they, they're not looking only at the surface. They're looking deeply into the heart of goodness. And my guess is that it's not bitter for a bodhisattva. If you think about how do you feel when you're with your family and things are good. Your favorite parent or parents. What's that feeling? Is this is as good as it gets. I think the Bodhisattva is in that state all the time. And he, the difference is, he or she has their eyes above the water. Not like before when they were down in the midst of all the struggle. And they want everybody else to come up out of the water and put their feet on solid ground and know that you've made it to the shore. That's, I think, what the Bodhisattva wants. And I'm, you know, I'm not a Bodhisattva, but I know that. You've ever, did you ever really be in water that was too deep and there was a risk of drowning? That feeling of kicking down below and there's nothing but low but water, you know? And suddenly your feet find something solid and you can walk out. That's, I think, the, what the Bodhisattva wants living beings to experience. You're safe. You made it. You're not in water that'll drown you. Yeah. And then what do they do? Once that living being finds the ground, the shore, and walks up onto the beach, the bodhisattva goes back out. Back out. So, if the realm, my vows could end if the realm of living beings could end. Next, if the realm of worlds could end. Let's look at this one and the next one together. If the realm of empty space could end. Okay, worlds and empty space. Um, <coughs> what was the heading? 
these great vows come to accomplishment through ten statements about cessation. ending sentences. Jin means the we use the word cessation. The earlier translation that I I hope we corrected was exhaustion. Ten statements about exhaustion. Exhaustion is not the right choice of word here, but um, I chose. I had the choice of saying infinity, but I don't think Jin here means infinity. Infinity brings another kind of association that I don't, I don't think this is talking about that. Shi Jin Ju means sentences. So the Bodhisattva's vows are accomplished through ten phrases that talk about stopping, cessation, jin, to the end of. Jin means ending. Ten phrases about ending. And Ardo Chongjo are understood, is what it means. We understand what these vows are like when we look at ten sentences, ten propositions that point to something coming to an end. Okay, will the realm of living beings come to an end? We've, I've been working on giving that a sense that no, it's not. Let's look at two more things. Worlds and space. Worlds, 众生界,世界,世界, we are living in a world. Um, what is that precisely? Have you ever noticed that, that when we assume, if we want to understand our limits as human beings, right away, if you talk about what, what we're standing on, right away it gets fuzzy, it gets nebulous, it gets ambiguous. Are we on a planet? Yep. Are we on a world? Yep. Are we on part of the solar system? Yep. Are we on something solid and stable? Nope. Especially where we live. This is a very unstable. Taiwan had a 6.3 earthquake three days ago, four days ago. Not very stable. Right? We are experiencing a major transition in the composition of our planet as we sit here. Right? Um, you look at Antarctica and watch pieces of it fall. People say that if you pay attention to, to environmental predictions and such, people say that the, the, the one to watch right now is the Greenland ice shelf. Because something is happening in Antarctica and in the Greenland ice shelf that happens dramatically. It happens fast. There's something called percolation right now, which is the rise in the temperatures causes the snow and the ice, the upper layers, to start to melt and that the melting goes down through tiny, tiny cracks. Down, 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 down. And there's a level because pretty much uh, if, you, if you're in a car and you're in a mountainous area and you see where the, the road has been blasted through and you've got the you know, hills, you're kind of in a little valley of the, the, the lanes of the freeway and you can see the layers, 
the planet is, is layer upon layer. You know, when there's an earthquake, it's because plates shifted, right? So if you look at the layers, the water percolates down through the ice and it gets to a layer and it goes under the layer and it slides. They say the one to watch is the Greenland ice shelf because there's percolation happening and big chunks of that can slide very quickly, like overnight. And they say that the Greenland ice shelf is currently the biggest single contiguous uh, land mass, glacier-like. When that, that could slide very quickly, and there's no, I mean, there is warning, they know it's happening, but when that, when that slides, we, it's like a big ice cube going into the ocean, right? And it changes the currents, it changes the, the wind, and that makes water. A lot of water. So anyway, they say that's a ticking, ticking phenomenon that's going on. It's the percolation down to layers that may be a mile down or 500 yards down, and the waters and and the big piece of ice slides in, and come up in the morning and discover that our oceans are in the process of cooling. So that's a uh, that's one thing. So. What we discover is this planet is pretty ambiguous. Our world. What I'm trying to prove, what I'm trying to illustrate, not prove, illustrate is worlds is an imprecise name. The next thing to do tonight, I, I don't know if it's cloudy or if it's clear. I know that in the Bay Area we tend to get a fog cover pretty early, about 4 o'clock the fog comes in. Just go to Richmond. It's if you come, I come down every Sunday night from Ukiah around midnight and it's really dramatic. You cross the Richmond Bridge and you can see this just like a blanket. It's like somebody's pulled a blanket over from El Cerrito, from Albany Hill, down to about, what, Hayward? There's this blanket of fog. comes in through the Golden Gate and just covers it. Here we look up, hard to see the sky. Go to Sacramento. Just go across into the into the valley, and you look up, and here are all these countless stars, countless, 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 countless stars. Those are worlds, or are they? Yes, no. Hard to say. You know, if you have a big telescope, you can start to count them. But are there worlds? Is that still a world? They have this planetary body orbiting something else. Is that a world? Hard to know. Yes and no. My point is, the Buddha says next, the Bodhisattva says, when worlds and the place where those worlds exist can come to an end, my vows will come to an end. When do those worlds come to an end? When does the last planet vanish? It won't, will it? That's the point. Neither will the vows. When does empty space come to an end? We can start from this absence of something right here in front of us, grab a handful of space, right? When does this come to an end? It won't. We're in it. We exist in space. When does space come to an end? It won't. Therefore, neither will my vows. So these are ten expressions of infinity and cessation and ending that are good to illustrate how much heart the Bodhisattva puts into his or her vows. Okay, got it? That's, that's the idea. 
All right. Um, we got three of those ten. There's seven more to go. And I have a, a lot of things I want to share before we end tonight. So I'm going to stop here. And would you all please take your sheet and stick it inside the cover? That will help us when we bind these. Thanks. Okay, um, we're going to dedicate merit first and then move into what I want to share. If you uh, have never done this transference before, you'll find it on that sheet there in your inserted in your sutra text. Please make a wish. something that you would like to see happen. A wish is also a vow. Transference wishes are vows. So you can make that wish with your heart. Because our hearts are one, this world.